0: Welcome to the Ether Review. I'm your host, Arthur Falls. The Ether Review is a podcast about the applications of blockchain technology, from big business to governments to the software that powers our cars. This new iteration of the internet affects every part of our lives. By speaking to the people who work in this emerging field, we aim to decrypt this new technology and distribute the future that is already here. The Ether Review is sponsored by Consensus Systems, a blockchain venture production studio that uses Ethereum technology to build decentralized applications. To find out more, visit consensus.net. That's C O N S E N S Y S.net. Or for cutting edge commentary on the blockchain and decentralization space, check out consensusmedia.net. On today's episode of the Ether Review, we have Juan Benet and Jesse Clayberg of Protocol Labs. And we're also joined by Ryan Zura of Polychain Capital. Thanks for joining me, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much, Arthur. So you guys have developed a framework for token issuance that you've called the SAFT, the Simple Agreement for Future Tokens. This is designed to basically take this current wild west of token issuance for fundraising and bring it into a realm where it is compliant with regulation. So to start with, let's begin with
1: what gave you guys the idea to develop this. Totally. So we were evaluating the options that we had to do the Filecoin sale, and this turned into a... Very extensive legal review of how these sales can be done, how they have been done, and at the time we noted that there's a bunch of questions around, you know, securities laws and tax laws and others. That prompted different groups to try different things, including, you know, in many cases, leaving the U.S. simply because it was hard for projects to fit within the legal landscape in the U.S. And so a lot of projects ended up leaving or, you know, just starting elsewhere from the get-go because people couldn't. Couldn't sort out a, a clean way of doing these token sales in the United States. And so a lot of our perspective on this was informed by looking at those projects and looking at what they're doing and, and so on. But our, our big goal there was try and create a way of doing token sales that is actually compliant within the U.S. And this is a very complicated legal landscape. We're dealing with the fact that there's you know global law in place where different countries handle these questions very differently and then we now have a new jurisdiction in the world which is like the internet blockchain power jurisdiction right like we're, we're talking about things like ethereum smart contracts are a new form of law in a way and through all this landscape you want to create a, a safe foundation for all of these projects that you're that you're building and that should be able to happen anywhere on the planet and you know as the as the as one of the, the main places where technological innovation happens, you know, it was really frustrating to see that the U.S. was losing out to a lot of other places in the perspective that people were choosing to leave places like Silicon Valley and so on to go elsewhere. And like, you know, it's the first time you've ever heard the idea that people building the technology are going to leave Silicon Valley to be able to build the technology. It's kind of silly to think that Ethereum or Filecoin or whatever couldn't be built from within the U.S. So... You know, I think zooming out and and looking at it in a broad way, countries are going to have to catch up to what the technology actually is and try to come up with like new proper regulation that fits them. But that's not coming for at least, you know, five, 10 years, if not more, right? A lot of the regulation that people are applying is actually 70 years old, or in some cases, potentially older. And so law moves at a slow pace. And this is where the constraints around trying to fit what doesn't really fit in those boxes. We still have to try and fit them, at least for the time being, into something that actually makes sense. And in some cases, potentially having to create new instruments that do fit correctly and allow you to do something the way you are actually trying to do it, just so you can probably find a way to do it in a compliant way with the current regulations in place. Into the SIFT. Yeah, and so, so this is like this super complicated landscape, took a very long time to review, You know, we've been working with the best lawyers in the space, gotten to know every firm. And we did the same thing that a few other groups did. In fact, there was like this simultaneous invention that occurred with multiple groups kind of coming up with the same idea, which was, hey, there was a similar kind of uncertain landscape before in fundraising, and that was like the convertible notes thing. And then YC, Y Combinator, came in and introduced the safe uh, to kind of clean all of that up. Won't go into too much detail there, but the basic idea was... The SAFE came in as a standard that cleaned up all of the convertible note variation and and complexity and created this new instrument. Before we go
0: on, actually, so can you fill in that acronym and then explain what a convertible note is? Yeah,
1: yeah. so a convertible note is, is usually a debt instrument that allowed companies to do fundraising in a much faster way than normal equity rounds. So this means a company could raise funding from... An investor in you know a single conversation have a single deal instead of having to corral five or six investors to do a single equity round. In seed deals, was really pivotal to making making this things happen quickly. And so the practice of using convertible debts to raise funding became you know pretty prevalent in around the world really, but definitely in Silicon Valley. And so you had a whole bunch of these instruments that were different. And so as as the landscape matured, people started putting all sorts of complex clauses and rights and weird things. And, and so the reaction was that Y Combinator said, look, look, this is really complicated and it's debt, which it really shouldn't be. You're actually fundraising. You're not, you're not taking on debt. What you're doing is you're trying to give somebody something that will convert into equity once you do an equity round. So let's create the simple agreement for future equity. And the idea there was, hey, like let's come up with a something that borrows a lot from the convertible node, but is simple, it's correctly structured, and everyone can understand it quickly, Like their legal teams can review it, and they can agree. And So that was the, the legal innovation that Y Combinator did. And you know, I, I remember that time when this kind of changeover happened from all these convertible nodes to suddenly only safes. And it took about a year or so, but pretty much everyone agreed that this was an important there was very little resistance because everyone kind of saw this like, oh, this is the right way to self regulate this thing and like kind of come up with the right standard for agreeing on these deals. And so multiple, multiple groups around, you know, over the last year, basically took a leaf out of that book and said, Hey, the token sale landscape right now is really messy. Everyone's doing a whole bunch of different things. It's all very confusing. There's no actual proper standards for doing things. A lot of things of questionable compliance across jurisdictions. Some things are fine in one jurisdiction, but not fine in another, and so on. And so the multiple groups said, hey, look, what if we create a thing called the SAFT, the Simple Agreement for Future Token, not equity, but token. And the option there is, hey, look, look, let's have a very simple standard document that everyone can agree on and people can use. A lot of the legal folks can review it and understand it, and there's no need to create all these very custom deals everywhere that take a while to understand and review and, and, and whatnot, and are in many cases potentially not compliant in a particular jurisdiction. And so that, that's where the SAT project came out. And we wanted to have something that we could use, and we figured that if we were going to use this, we might as well have something that other people could use. And I think the same thing happened with a couple other groups that built a SAFT. And so it was, it was this funny moment where pretty much everyone started, like, you know, got done with their legal work and had suddenly a SAFT. And then we all started seeing each other's, like, SAFT documents fl- floating around. We we're like, whoa. And so that was a funny, like, coincidence. And work remains to be done to, like, synthesize all of that energy to come to one set of documents that has a very standard... Analysis that you know certainly in the us are a big deal and in a whole bunch of other countries around the world are a big deal and you know there's there's a ton of cross jurisdiction analysis that also needs to be done and all of this work I think is is oftentimes disregarded by a lot of groups but it's it's really critical and important to make sure that the system that you're building and the platform that you're creating is going to survive how you fundraise is a really important piece to get right and and so that's that's where we came into the SAF project
2: yeah so From the investor side of this equation, we were kind of looking at a bunch of different projects around the space, and a lot of projects had gone with this donation model, which is sort of the original thing that Ethereum used, and we had come to the conclusion after some legal review that we probably matured beyond that model, and we needed something that more adequately represented the actual nature of the transaction. So us as a fund, we're only interested in tokens. We're not interested in equity. We're not interested in debt instruments. And so the angle that we took on this was to create a document that would allow us to come in and help teams out at early stage seed deployment of capital but really it's a commercial transaction where i'm giving you money today and sometime in the future subject to a bunch of risk parameters that i bear you're going to give me tokens and we just thought that that represented what we needed as a token fund in a much cleaner fashion It allowed us to come in at a very early stage to certain projects and and kind of help them get structured and, and move their project forward. And then it also just represented the actual nature of the transaction in a lot cleaner fashion than these like very complex donation structures in far off lands and things like that. We thought that that was kind of unnecessary. And in some instances may, as Juan alluded to, may end up transferring tax liability to U.S. tax residents that are working for these foreign entities. Obviously, that would need to be analyzed on a case-by-case basis, but we just felt like this SAFT sort of represented a cleaner agreement for both entrepreneurs and for investors.
0: And so what was your involvement in this whole thing,
3: Jesse?
1: Hmm.
3: Uh, so I work at Protocol Labs with Juan, effectively Juan and yes, I. just yes, built
1: it. Built it. And <laughs>
3: Well, the team and I have been just diving in really deeply over the past several months now. It's interesting to know too, and I think it just goes to highlight how complex the space is, that, that this took us much longer than we expected it would. And it first starts off, you might think, oh, okay, well, so, you know, let's clear this with the entities in the U.S., so SEC, that seems like, yeah, we should go there. And then once you start diving in there, you realize that you need to go to the CFTC. And then once you go there, you realize you go to the, you know, on and on and on until you get your alphabet soup of, uh, of government agencies. And yeah, so effectively, you know, we all just kind of work together as a team here to, you know, I mean, I, I don't think it, it would not be fair of us to claim credit for the SAP just ourselves, but rather it's, it's the contributions of a lot of people that we've worked with, which has included um, a lot of experts from a varying array of, of specialties.
1: And it, and it actually probably bears mentioning there, like we got Marcus Antori at Cooley, who has been opining on the crypto space for years the folks at Coin Center with their you know securities framework that they built, the creators of the Safe themselves, so Auric, who is another or legal partners in in the legal landscape. Oh, and uh, Angelus as well. So it, we we kind of pulled together like this network of brilliant people and, and people who had thought deeply about all the legal landscape questions. And we got investors around the table as well to like talk to them and, and see what they thought about all these pieces and what a, a natural way forward would be. And it's through that set of discussions that we started carving out what this kind of instrument needed to look like. You know, we, we ended up succeeding in boiling it down to something quite simple that companies and organizations of all different sorts will be able to use to raise funding. This is fundraising right? Like the activity that's going on right now is fundraising. And in many cases, there's a lot of profit realized. And in those cases, it is an investment or, you know, categorizing it that way is a much more correct way to grab a transaction. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of questions around like investor protection laws, right? Like if you're in a situation where you find a project online and it says, hey, donate to this address and so on. You know they don't really have an obligation to then take those donations and actually deliver on the plans to create a project necessarily. Then there's no rights as an investor, and like what does that look like if you just gave a ton of money to a group that raised tens, hundreds of millions of dollars in funding to go and build a platform, and a lot of that is in donations, and suddenly like you, they say, hey, well these are donations. Uh, thank you for donating all this this money. We may or may not complete the project, right? Like there's no recourse uh, to a lot of the people that. Gave those donations to actually make sure that the people who said we're going to build this platform actually do, because there's a big difference between an investment where there is some liability involved with a group that does not deliver on that investment versus something that is just donation, right? So I think, I think, and this is perhaps like the key point that the Saft brings to bear is there's a fundamental difference between a token that is developed and ready to be used in the you know live network. Versus a token that is proposed and needs to be built and people need to raise funding to build it.
2: Yeah, this is a really important point, Quan. If, if you want to dive further into this and why this is so important.
1: Yeah, so I think in the U.S. specifically, we're most familiar with, with the U.S. legislation, but here there's a thing called the Howey test. How does the government and how do people, entities transacting in the U.S. determine whether something is an investment agreement or not?
0: I've actually just done a comprehensive Howie test episode. You guys will, I'll have it so you guys follow that and then we don't have to worry about it.
1: Great. So, so since you have all listened to Arthur's awesome podcast on what the Howie test is and how it works, we can proceed. And if you haven't listened to it, pause right now, go listen to it and then come back. We'll be waiting here. So, you know, there's a the Howie test that, that you can use to, to determine whether something is an investment. And it turned out that from a lot of perspectives, when a token is not yet usable, like the case of Filecoin, right? Filecoin is a token, it's a utility token where you're going to be able to use the token to pay for storage in the network to hire a whole network of participants to store files for you and you spend the token in this way. And on the flip side, if you're a storage provider, you're receiving the token and, and for storing files, The token then is much more like, you know, a commodity or some sort of like voucher that allows you to pay for this storage and it can be exchanged for Bitcoin, Ether dollars and so on. But that's a separate question. The big thing there is this is very different from what happens when projects are just getting started. When a project is just getting started and the network is not yet live and the token is not yet usable, then what you have is a statement of proposing what this token will do in the future before the token is functional to go and build out that token and make it functional. What's going on there is you're exposing all of the people that are giving money to this fundraising thing. You're exposing them to the risk that perhaps this may not get built and they won't be able to use those tokens to either store files or or potentially realize an investment, which is a very different kind of use case than, hey, I need to store a file right now. Hey, the Filecoin network is online. Let me go buy a token so I can go higher the network to store a file. And it's, it's, a, it's a different stage of, of the network.
3: Yeah, I think that's a great point to call out because ultimately you can see these things as, as tokens of having a life cycle from inception, from white paper, from earliest idea, all the way to, hey, this is, is useful for this good or service or what have you on a platform. And so within that life cycle, you have these differing periods of risk so the earlier periods have much, much higher risk because so much needs to be done to realize that ultimate platform and service. Whereas you know if I go to an exchange right now and I, and I buy you know, an Ether, I can use that on the Ethereum platform immediately for a good or service. And so my risk in buying an Ether right now is, is much, much less than you know, investing in a project which is very, very early, which Ryan was saying earlier, may not, may, not have a, uh, may not have much at all in terms of development.
0: Hey, before we proceed, what does the SEFT actually look like? What is the SEFT?
2: Well, there's a couple of different SAFTs out there, depending on the nature of, and stage of the project. We, even internally, we have different SAFTs depending on how mature a project is. But it essentially, it just governs the nature of the transaction, which is making some deployment of capital in at, at time zero. And then the expectation of tokens being distributed to the buyer at some future event, subject to a number of risk factors. And the risk factors are really important. You know, you have to sort of handle how those risks are born. And that's really where accreditation comes in and sophistication as investors. Because if you're getting behind a project that uh, a significant amount of technical innovation has to be created in order to make this dream a reality, that's really the domain of sophisticated investors that have the technical and business skill set to evaluate these projects at this high risk moment.
0: So what limitations do the various types of saft that you've developed impose on the investor themselves or the token purchaser themselves
1: So so the the, the saft that we're pushing for and you know like we we developed a very simple agreement that primarily just governs a transaction that is for future tokens at which point this instrument converts into tokens so step one is look developers go out and publish a white paper and then the developers should have an entity and you know this could be a normal delaware corporation in the us could be a different company elsewhere Um, people that entity enters into a saft agreement a simple agreement of future tokens with investors and they do an offering uh, in what it's called, at least in the U.S., it's called a 506C offering where you have to accredit investors. And so you have to like actually check that investors that are buying these securities are actually accredited. There's a classification here from the SEC of like who is not an accredited investor. People enter into the SAFT agreement with accredited investors. Investors transfer some funds to the developers. And in exchange for that, receive this document, this SAFT, that gives them... A particular price, given based on the amount of money that they're giving, they are going to get some tokens in the future when the network is actually developed and deployed. But the price is frozen at that moment in time, so they have a total no- u- number of units of the tokens. That's how we've constructed this app, so that investors have that security, like they know that the price is fixed and they know what they're going to get. And the developers get to work. So, right, so this this fundraising transaction has happened. The developers then go to work and build out the network and this could take, you know, weeks, months and the SAFT transaction is deemed completed when the network launches and gives all of the investors who hold SAFTs their proper amounts of of currency and now those investors are in control of those tokens. Now there's an interesting set of variations there where you might want to introduce things like vesting, like it's actually a useful feature to have investors vest. So you might actually leave open some of the SAFs and have a, a stage transaction where some SAFs close at a particular moment in time, or some of them might close a little bit later, like say you know, a year later or two years later, depending on what that vesting schedule looks like. A whole bunch of reasons why you might want to do vesting, right? Like things like lockup periods are useful and you know you you want you want investors that actually believe in the technology. They're not just gonna dump a currency or whatever. Like you want people that actually will, will stick with it. And so Highly encouraged to think about investing as an important component here. There's a bit of a problem here, though. Cryptocurrency
2: has created about 10,000 millionaires. Yeah, the 10,000 millionaires problem. Yeah. This is a really interesting problem and something that I love brainstorming with people on is the fact that Ethereum and Bitcoin and tokens have created somewhere on the order of 10,000 millionaires, which is an amazing distribution of wealth and... I would venture a guess that that's probably more millionaires than have been created in the valley in the last few years, but nonetheless, we now have a situation where we have this like threshold of objectively sophisticated investors who, by by the way, all consider themselves very sophisticated investors at this point, point. and so so you have all, all these people who you know consider themselves VCs and are approaching investment like VCs and you know wanting to be accredited and wanting to have access to these different. Token crowd funds. And that's why what we're seeing is kind of the breakdown of this current model uh, where you've got people who are ready to deploy very significant capital into projects and this like crazy race within seconds to deploy all of this capital. We need to think about further and, and projects need to start thinking about further is, okay, well, now that capital is no longer the scarce resource here, how do I select my investors? And so then, and now I'm hoping that we're starting to see more of a filtration process. And this is what is wonderful about CoinList and the direction they're going. But in general, I'm hoping that we see in in the space a bit of a filtration where projects are actively selecting the types of investors they want to work with. And that's not just the investors who are going to give them the most amount of money in the shortest period of time. It's often investors who are going to do a lot of other things for them. So really, you know, as we move forward, We could see a commercial and non-commercial component of the SAFs where investors have deliverables that they need to execute on in order to get to lock in their valuation. And if they don't execute on, then maybe they don't get that valuation or, you know, we'll see how that all shakes out. But I certainly think that projects are needing to think about how to filter and select for the best investment partners now and not just any investment partner. But the other
0: side of it is the entire international community don't all have access to the United States to become accredited investors. And many of those 10,000 millionaires do not have the fiat wealth to meet the, uh, the wealth capitalization threshold to become an accredited investor. So it's added this barrier. And what I'm wondering is how much of the capital out there is held by individuals who cannot or will not become accredited investors in order to participate in a SAFT agreement.
3: Yes, I think in general, this is a really interesting point to bring up. And ultimately, these things are distributed and oftentimes decentralized networks, right? And you want a vast array of participants in that network. And ultimately, it's a thing of really the accredited investor title, what, is it, what does it mean or take to be an accredited investor? You have over a certain amount of wealth and that's it, right? So I think that just because you're an accredited investor doesn't make you any more suited or less suited to be able to invest in these things. And that goes into to what Ryan was saying earlier, is that truly, what do you really want at the end of the day? You want to build the very best network. And so the people you want involved in that network especially in the early days the the early holders aren't the crypto speculators that are looking to just get in as fast as they can make a, you know, a quick profit and then dump, uh, dump the token as soon as it's listed, but you want the people that can provide a ton of real legitimate value, They can help you. Um, and, and we've seen this at Protocol Labs. So we've you know, raised money in the past from, from a lot of really, really great and useful investors who have helped us all along the path of, from anything, introduction to new candidates, to you know, ways of thinking about approaching new markets or ideas or, or economics or what have you, you know, building and, and growing a company. And that's what I think. You know, we really hope to see the market transition to a place in where you know the earliest investors in these networks are aren't aren't limited to you know like a title like oh you're an accredited investor cool you can invest and if not then then you're left out. But rather the focus is more put on those that can provide super high early value. Then kind of like taking that viewpoint and incorporating it with the view of modern day, you know, fundraising law and securities law, and going back to that idea of risk, potentially these things have a lot of risk. And that's where we spend a lot of time and consideration on on trying to ask ourselves, how can we really include as, as many people as possible in these sales?
0: I have two questions here. The first is how do you make sure you can include people who don't fit into that accredited investor category? But there's another question that I also want to piggyback on that. And that is traditionally we thought of selling these tokens as a way of seeding a community? And if you don't have the ability to offer this to small investors, how can you see that community and are there other mechanisms that you can use?
1: Yeah, let me, let me address both of those points. But before I do I need to, like let me back up a little bit and describe a little bit more. So we've been around for a while. You know, Before Ethereum, we were already in the crypto space and, and we've seen the creation of these extremely valuable decentralized networks that were in a big way, you know, really disregarded and misunderstood by the main technology investors around the world. And, you know, I, I remember when Ethereum was, was getting started, like tons, a lot of investors were like completely skeptical and like did not really understand that this was going to be really valuable. And the people that understood its value and helped create it were people that were not technology investors. They were not accredited investors. They were people who were grassroots involved in the crypto space, involved in, perhaps some of them were involved in in Bitcoin before. Some of them were distributed systems researchers. Some of them were, you know, game theory people or finance people. Some of them were like, you know, legal people that said, hey, great, smart contracts, finally. And so you saw this huge, you know, surge of grassroots, bottom-up innovation and reinvention of a whole bunch of amazing new tech that all came from a very large community. So, and you know, a lot of those people were, came to the forum in the first place because they heard about the project and because they could get involved through the initial sale that Ethereum ran. And it was that initial investment that really cemented their commitment to the community and carried through their involvement and so on. And to me, that was an amazing show of the decentralization of power globally of saying, look, here are people that understand the value of this thing and they can support it. They can fund it and they can help build it. And it got made that way. Right. Like that was that's an extremely powerful thing and and valuable thing. And so I think it's it's really important that whatever this space gravitates to and, and builds, it needs to be able to allow that kind of bottom up decentralized innovation and reinvention and fundraising. But I think the important thing there is like, think about ways of of really involving and incorporating the community. Now, um, one big important piece there is noting that, first of all, there are certain things like Jesse mentioned, like the regulation crowdfunding. The current iteration of regulation crowdfunding tends to cement the accredited investor thing because it's just so hard to do and, and you don't end up getting that much money. But that said, like you, projects should still vie for and try to do that. People projects should still try to engage the broader community in that way. So it's one one thing that can be done. The other thing that can be done is, is noting the fact that the accredited investor listing is what the U.S. came up with, and there are other countries that have different regulations. And so what you want to do is actually offer comply with the regulations, you know, according to what people are actually subject to. The U.S. has a, a thing for this called the Reg S offering. Which is that you're basically telling the US, hey, look, we're gonna be doing an offering outside of the US is for people that are not US citizens. US restrictions don't apply to them. And so the, the question is like in the US, you could probably do crowdfunding and involve a lot of people that way. An additional thing that to note here, what we'll probably see is it'll be two important fundraising moments. One at the very beginning, when there's like much, much, much riskier, and that's you know, where questions around accredited investors and so on land. And then there'll be another moment where, you know, the network finally goes live and it's sold at a discount to a lot of people that are able to distribute it in a big way. Like that's the proper ICO, like the the initial coin offering type thing is really when it becomes public and anybody can use it at that moment in time and you do a big sale at a discount. And I think perhaps like the most important one to me, what we perhaps should be thinking about is how can we involve all of the the grassroots bottom-up innovation and turn those, instead of being investments of money, where, you know, again... Uh, the accredited investor listing is basically restricting people who don't have a lot of money, who perhaps shouldn't be investing, you know, in extremely high-risk projects that could, like, you know, leave them without money. Like, there's, the regulations are there for good reason in that, you know, we have, there's a long history of of really bad events where a lot of people were defrauded uh, in a huge way and left with nothing, right? And so, like, I think a lot of people in the crypto space are really excited about the Ethereum returns and, you know, everyone feels that, like, it can only all go up. And, and forget that there's a long history of, of terrible situations where a lot of people have been defrauded. We've seen a number of scams already in the crypto space, and with the huge influx of money, we'll see a lot more. So ostensibly, a lot of people could be cheated out of, like you know, their life savings, and like that's not a good place to be. And so I think that the thing that projects need to do right now, and this is something that we think about very carefully, is how can we involve the broader community and have them invest their time in a different way? It's like Instead of saying to people, hey, go and invest your money, it's like say, hey, look, perhaps we can create an arrangement and a structure where people can be rewarded directly for contributing to the protocol in some way or creating the network in some way. Similar to how Ethereum started right away paying people in, in Ether or effectively future Ether, but, it, but it's, a lot, it's, a, it's a whole other option people can employ without really needing to take people's money that actually is much well, better aligned with the network. What what you want from the broader community is involvement. What you want uh, is bring them to help you create the thing. And so focus on that. And, and I think like the majority of the people that, are, that were helping Ethereum in the early days were not just giving money. They were very involved. They were helping build things. They were helping discuss things in forums. And all of that was a very different kind of activity than just kind of sitting back with a big pile of money and speculating, right? Like sitting back with a big pile of money and speculating is not that useful to the network. What's useful to network is engagement and, and helping build the things themselves. Or, or you well, know-
0: taken... ex- yeah. That was exactly the nature of my involvement with Ethereum and actually where this podcast came from. I bought Ether in the crowd sale and then made an Ethereum podcast. And, and what you're talking about also makes me think of Wikipedia and the sheer wealth of labor. And if you were to look at the people who do spend time editing Wikipedia, a lot of those hours are worth $1,000 a piece and it's the ability to drive your community to improve and develop your platform, exactly as you said, is what we should be really incentivizing. Whereas now what we seem to have is a free for all, mad grab, and this idea that you can just throw so much money at something that eventually it will get built. You've been listening to the Ether Review. I'm Arthur Falls. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit etherreview.info.